program at the National, excuse me, the Natural Resources Defense Council. His work aims to increase utility funded energy efficiency programs in the affordable multifamily housing sector. Khalil also promotes the expansion of green communities in New Orleans. Prior to joining NRDC, he worked domestically and internationally in urban and rural community development and in economic and environmental justice organizing. He holds a master's degree in sustainable international development from Brandeis University and a PhD in political ecology from the University of Delaware. He's based in NRDC's Washington, D.C. office. Welcome, Khalid. Um, thank you, and uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so, as she just mentioned, my background is kind of all over the place. Um, I, am, I grew up in Louisiana, um, uh, was born in New Orleans, lived in Morgan City, which is a small sort of shrimping coastal village uh, uh, right along the uh, Gulf Coast. And so my, my family is sort of split between uh, New Orleans and Morgan City. Um, and then uh, eventually moved to uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, uh, where uh, my mother uh, was transferred. I consider myself uh, an oil and gas refugee uh, from Louisiana uh, because the majority of my family, literally almost everyone, is in, works in oil and gas, uh, you know, from the wellhead uh, to the gas station to the corporate office. Um, and my mother, uh, very early on, uh, you know, and, and, and she will probably factor a great deal in this story that I'm about to tell you about sort of my journey uh, to, uh, to this place, um, you know, but, but, but she was one who, you know, did not let, uh, you know, the social circumstances, you know, that was, you know, 1970s, you know, southern Louisiana uh, limit her uh, and her options, uh, you know, particularly after she and my father split. Uh, you know, she you know she could have done many things, but she continued to press forward. Um, and you know, her job transferred her uh, to uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, which is where I was raised uh, the, the the majority of my life before going back to New Orleans as soon as I could escape uh, Lafayette. Um, and, and and you'll find out why that that is. Um, but so but so you know, I came into uh, environmental work and environmentalism sort of through the back door uh, because it was not, uh, you know, the first purpose uh, that really animated my life. And, 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 and it was really through a process of engagement, uh, of learning, and of discovery, both of the importance of that relationship, um, you know, but also how it really codified and really brought together a lot of the strands of the work that I had been doing before. Um, and, and it really in a sense, you know, just really grounded a lot of it and really gave it a much deeper sense of purpose, you know, going forward uh, than a lot of the, you know, the, the organizing and the community work uh, that I was doing before. Um, and, so, and so hopefully, you know, that will come out um, of the story as well. And, and, and as we sort of move into this sort of week of events and, you know, and, you know, uh, intense uh, engagement around the People's Climate March, you know, I think for me, there is a different story that is missing from that conversation uh, that I hope uh, will also come out uh, again today. Um, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of used to, 
you know, throughout my life being a bit of a contrarian um, and being sort of set aside uh, from the, from the majority. Um, and that often comes up in a lot of my conversations with, with my colleagues uh, within the environmental movement uh, here in D.C. And that's whether I'm working with environmental justice organizations or with the big green groups like NRDC, uh, where I work now. Um, and so, you know, just to, you know, and so to step back a little bit and kind of, you know, begin this story and, you know, begin this journey. As I mentioned, um, my mother and I, you know, we moved from Morgan City, uh, where we lived in an area of Morgan City. It was an a unincorporated part of a very rural community, so we were really isolated, uh, called uh, Greenwoods, which was our family property. Uh, you know, there were, there, there were five houses all on this property, which was shared. You know, I woke up in the morning. I never knew which house I was going to have breakfast at, but it was a relative, and so we had breakfast at someone's house. Uh, I never know where I was going to eat lunch, but we had lunch. Never knew where I was going to eat dinner. And depending on where I got tired, I fell asleep wherever I felt like sleeping. And so it, it was really, looking back on it, a very idyllic type of upbringing, although we didn't really think of it that way. And, and, and we kind of took it for granted and didn't, and didn't really value it you know, for what it actually could have been if we had actually been really purposeful about doing it. And so, you know, growing up later, you know, I would hear about, you know, all these, you know, intentional communities and, you know, these communes and these things. And I was like, oh, that's kind of like what we had, but we didn't think it, think of it that way. And a lot of us grew up thinking we need to escape this place because <laughs> it was just family everywhere. But, you know, but, you know, we had, you know, a huge yard. And so kids would kind of come from, from other parts of town, come to our space because it was a huge space that you could play, you know, all types of games, football, basketball, whatever you wanted to do, um, you know, all, uh, you know, in this space. And so, you know, for the, for, for, for the very early portion of my life, you know, we moved there um, and, Somehow, I recall it being literally the day before I turned six was when we actually moved because it seemed like as soon as I got, as soon as we got to Lafayette, the next day it was just my birthday, and maybe my mother just did that. I don't know, but 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 I remember there being cake um, the very next day. It seemed like, but so but so you know, for this portion of my life, like like literally, you know, my best friends were family. It was my cousins. You know, I, you know, I was an only child, and so, but I had older cousins who, to me, are like my older brothers still to this day, and and and, and so, and these are the people who I grew up with. And so, when I was removed from that, and we went to Lafayette, um, you know, it was it was really isolating. You know, to me, it, it was it was very difficult, and that I, I think kind of again this sort of this sort of point you know, to me, where I, where I was sort of set apart, uh, you know, and, and so, and, and so, and, and I think, you know, that sort of began this sort of internal journey for me, uh, which I really appreciate now because, you, you know, now, you know, we, you know, we call it, uh, you know, introvert and extroverted personalities, but to me, I, I think, you know, the point of introspection that introverts have that sometimes extroverts don't seem to really care that much about, <laughs> I think is, I, <laughs> I think, you know, to me anyway, has been very valuable. Um, and so I think being uprooted from this space where I was very comfortable, you know, with family everywhere, you know, that, that I looked to, to coming to a space where I was literally alone at six years old uh, in a new school, 
uh, with new people, um, it really focused me to, you know, to really go within. And so I became, I think, a lot more introverted, a lot more introspective. And, and I think, you know, that has really helped me and sort of carried me uh, to today and really sort of given me this, this sort of contrarian perspective where I was able to escape, uh, you know, this trend of actually, you know, of just following my family into the oil and gas industry. Because Louisiana, um, you know, is one of the few spaces, uh, you know, that remain where, you know, if you graduate from high school without killing anyone, you can kind of get a job in the oil and gas sector that can lead you to a, to a, to a uh, middle class career, you know, if that's what you want. Um, you know, and I've seen many people, uh, you know, many people in my family who really balked at that life, you know, who wanted something different, but didn't really have a whole lot of options. Um, you know, and, and I've seen them in, in many cases, you know, turn to drugs as an alternative economic livelihood, go to prison, come out broken, and end up right back in that oil and gas industry. And so, and so, and so it's really, when I say I, I'm a refugee, that I've been liberated, I, I mean that in a very real sense, because for, for, for most of my family, for most people that I know, our sense of livelihood is very constrained. Uh, in, in that way, which also constrains who we are as people. Um, and so when my mother and I moved uh, from Morgan City uh, to Lafayette, um, you know, I, again, I think it was the day before my birthday, but we're not quite sure. Um, <laughs> so I was really young. She was, she was a young single mother uh, in South Louisiana, uh, you know, in the early 1980s, and no one would rent her an apartment because she was a single black woman. Uh, she could not find anyone who would rent her an apartment. And so she had to get a friend of hers at work. Uh, she worked for Chevron, one of the largest oil corp corporations uh, in the world. Uh, she had to get a friend of hers uh, at work to put in applications for her. Um, and she worked with, in one of the largest oil companies in the world. It was not very diverse. And so, of course, her friend was white um, and, you know, not really appreciating you know, the, these distinctions, she put in an application for my mother in a lower income, white working class trailer park on the south side of Lafayette. Um, and so, because, and, and, and it was she and her husband, because she was actually married. And so, she, the application was accepted, and my mother showed up, and she said the property, the, the property manager's face just turned literally red, like three shades of red, because he did not know that he was renting to a black woman because he would not have uh, otherwise. And so, but that's where we lived uh, for the majority uh, of my life. And we were the only black family in this working class white neighborhood. And so needless to say, I, I learned to fight uh, very quickly, uh, mostly against my will because I was not really within my nature, which I would come back to. Um, you know, and, and, and so, but, you know, it, it, it really for me, again, gave me a sense of this sort of distinction, you know, but also this, this sort of separateness. And so me being, again, sort of set apart from everything else that was around me. And so, and so, it, sort of, it, so it really set the stage, um, you know, for that. Um, you know, the, 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 the elementary school that I went to was called Plantation Elementary. Um, <laughs> Uh, for the first four years of school, from first grade through fourth grade, uh, I was the only black kid in my class. Uh, you know, and in fifth grade was when there was uh, busing, you know, desegregation, and there was forced busing. And so that 
kicked in at the fifth grade level. And so at fifth grade, you know, you started to get all these kids from the north side of town, the black side of Lafayette, who came into Plantation Elementary. Uh, and, 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 and so, and, and, and again, you know, I, I began to be aware, you know, of these distinctions. And so, and, and even though I was living in this sort of lower income, working class white community, most of, most of the white kids that I knew, their livelihoods and lifestyles were very different from the kids who were being bused in uh, from the north side of town. And that just, and that really struck me, you know, as, as in trying to understand, you know, what was different <laughs> about these kids that made, you know, their clothes, you know, seem of a lesser quality or, you know, they, or the cars that their parents picked them up in, if their parents were able to pick them up in, just didn't seem quite as nice as this, the ones that these other kids drove. And so, and so I, I began to be, you know, immediately aware, you know, of these distinctions. And, and I remember I, I, I would just really, I was really interested in asking, you know, well, well, what do your parents do? You know, so I was really interested in figuring out, you know, what was the difference between, you know, what their parents did, you know, where, where they worked, you know, try, trying to understand understand, you know, how this disparity, you know, you know, was created, um, you know, but, but I was still really, you know, kind of unaware, you know, really of what was really happening, one, because, you know, obviously, you know, the school system, you know, didn't really discuss these types of things, and, and this history was really missing, you know, from the curriculum such that, you know, I wanted to play baseball. Um, you know, I, I, and, and so, you know, my mother being a mother, uh, signed me up for, you know, the local t-ball team, which went by your zip code. And so whatever zip code you were in, you know, that's the t-ball team that you played for. Um, and my t-ball team, uh, practiced, uh, at, uh, St. Pius Church. I still remember the name of the church. It's St. Pius Church off of, uh, Kali Saloon Road. And it wasn't until much, much later uh, I was probably in high school, looking back on it, and I still have the pictures today, and, and I've actually been trying to, trying to work on a blog where I can talk about this, but the uniform of my t-ball team was modeled off of the Confederate soldier's uniform. It, it, was, it, it was gray with the black stripes. Our hat had the rebel flag in it. You know, we had a rebel flag pendant on our pants. And so, and, and, so, and this is, and, and, and Looking back on it now, you know, you know, this is to me uh, an example of integration without justice, of of you know integration where you know the sort of dominant cultural narrative sort of remains one of this very oppressive culture, you know, even as you're you know allowing quote unquote other people to come into um, you know this space and and and, and so. And so, and I'm reflecting on that now, you know, because, you know, through my work, you know, in, you know, urban development and a lot of these things, you know, you know, the, the big narrative now is moving to opportunity and we want to move poor people from poor communities and put them in, you know, near spaces of opportunity in middle class and, and wealthier communities. And I'm like, okay, but how are you going to do that and ensure that culturally and socially you're actually changing that narrative and, and actually creating space for people that, that you're moving from one space to another because this is what it looked like for me, you know, in, in this one setting. And, 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 there, and there are other examples, you know, less extreme, less, less explicit, but nonetheless important. Um, but so, so yeah, so, so that was my t-ball team. Um, the Rebel Reynolds, it was a, a recycling facility that sponsored us and, you know, the Rebel flag and everything. And I have this photo of me holding the bat, you know, just as proud and happy as I am in my Confederate uniform. Um, 
and 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 you know and and now you know I you know I I use it as leverage you know anytime I go home and, and tease my mother to get her to cook for me because she hates to cook. Um, <laughs> remember what she did, but 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 actually when it when it comes back you know in in most cases I would end up cooking for her because she knew what it was um, you know but her response was was you wanted to play baseball and so she, and so. And, and so, you know, she suffered that insult. She, she took that. You know, she took the stares from those parents and from other parents, um, you know, because, you know, you wanted to play baseball. And so, and, and that to her was more important than, you know, than, you know, making a political statement or, you know, any of these other things. And so, and so she really absorbed that. And I appreciate that. And she, you know, did that a lot throughout my life. Um, and so, and, 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 you know, and she talks about, like, you know, the coach of the team, you know, when, when, when he first met her, like, he could not look her in the eye because he knew, you know, what this was. Um, you know, but then they eventually became very good friends, um, you know, and he, you know, won because I was probably his best player anyway. Um, so he wanted to keep her happy. Um, but, but also, um, you know, he, you know he, he would, you know, give her six tickets to, you know, to go see the, the you know, the, the New Orleans Saints games, you know, things like that. You know, he, but he, he really became, you know, a, a pretty good friend. You know, he would, you know, you know, come by and visit and just, you know, just check on us even after I stopped playing for that team, um, you know, and moved on. Because, you know, once we went from T-ball to, you know, where, where kids were actually throwing a, a, a hard ball at you, I did not want to play baseball anymore. <laughs> You know, you know, until they taught these kids some control, I was not going to be out there um, because I couldn't tell if they were actually pitching or just throwing at me. Uh, <laughs> it's a true story. Uh, I, I switched to soccer, <laughs> and I still love soccer today. But, um, but, but, well, yeah, and, and actually, you know, playing soccer, uh, you know, I started playing soccer again, you, you know, at five years old, and, and, and this is, again, sort of, you know, the legacy of my mother who you know, was always adamant, you know, to me about, you know, not following, you know, you know, what, what anyone else did. You know, she wanted me to be my own person. She hated, you know, when she, you know, thought or when I was acting in a way that she, that she saw as following other people that she hated that more, more than, more than anything else. And so, you know, and that was reflected, you know, in the fact that she signed me up for soccer. I'd never heard of soccer. No one in my family had never played it, but I fell in love with it. And I still play it today, even though I'm much, much too old to do it. But so, you know, and, and so, you know, and, and, and she was always, you know, doing those things, you know, one, you know, to try to get me to branch out, um, you know, you know, to try to get me outside of the sort of traditional pattern. You know, she wanted to sign me up for gymnastics. I refused to do it because I just didn't understand it. You know, those types of things, you know, but, but you know, and, and, and sometimes it, it, it would really come out and be reflected. You know, I, I think, you know, she set it as her life's mission to make sure that I was the least cool person uh, you know, in the school. And so, you know, you know, there was, you know, one year, you know, all the kids were getting roller skates, you know, because, you know, there was a nice roller rink, you know, so I was like, hey, I would like some roller skates. And she obliged, she got me some roller skates, you know, but they were flaming red roller skates with yellow racing stripes on them, and the wheels were metal. <laughs> so you could hear me coming a block away. 
with these metal roller skates, you know, down the streets, and, and it was just, it was just completely off-putting. You know, you know, all the kids were getting remote-controlled cars. Hey, I'd like a remote-controlled car. So she got me a remote-controlled car that was attached to a string, so I had to follow it literally, you know, around. But that was my car. You know, my bike was the literally the ugliest. It was, it, it was. It was a poop-stained colored bike, uh, you know, that with a, with a big banana seat. It was not a racer. I did not win many races. Uh, and so, you know, she, I, you know, sort, sort of said it as her point in life to make sure that I was just not following the crowd, uh, you know. And, you know, and, and again, you know, that really sort of, sort of, sort of set in me the sort of sense that, okay, I can kind of be my own person. I can kind of walk, walk to my own beat. Um, and I can, I, I can sort of develop, uh, you know, my, my own path and approach to this. And so, you know, as, you know, going through school, um, you know, and I began to, again, you know, to be made more aware of some of these distinctions and some of these differences and, you know, the things that, that were happening, both, you know, in the space that I was living, in the neighborhood that, that we were living, in this trailer park and the way that I was treated there, but then also, you know, as I, you know, went through school and began to see, you know, some of these distinctions, uh, you know, I just began, you know, my own personal, um, in, you know, investigation of this. And then, you know, by the time I got to high school, you know, but, you know, I, we still didn't have, you know, in part because, you know, we were, we were still kind of in this city, in this town where we didn't really know a whole lot of people. Um, you know, most of her friends, uh, you know, were friends from work. Um, you know, you know, you, you know, we didn't really, and so, you know, the, you, know, you know, there weren't a lot of mentors, you know, that I could turn to and sort of pose these questions. And so we're trying to figure these things out, you know, but there were always, you know, just, just these slight little things, you know, that I would notice, like, you know, when we were riding in our car and we'd go and pick up, um, you know, one of her best friends, a woman named uh, Eileen Hurley, who was like another mother to me and, 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 you know, her son, Jonathan, you know, we grew up together, you know, he's much younger than I am, but, but we grew up together almost like, 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 like brothers. Um, you know, but I would notice that when, cause she, and she's white, and I would notice that when she would get in the car, my mother would change the radio station from the R&B station to classic rock or whatever it was. And, I, was, and I, I would just notice, like, you know, these little things about how, you know, our lives, uh, you know, and the things that we did and the things that, that, that we valued, you know, were sort of just not going to be accepted or, you know, yeah, it, 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 that, that, I, 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 I just never quite understood that. Um, and so, you know, by the time I got to high school, I was like, you know, I really need to figure this stuff out. Um, you know, and so I remember I was probably around 14 years old, and 14 or maybe 15, and I asked my mother, I said, look, you know, I need you to take, I need, we need to go to a bookstore, I need to get a book on black history, I need to try to start to read some of this stuff. Um, you know, because, and, and that's again, Another thing that she blessed me with was, was you know, she, she was always reading. She had, she had a wall of books, but, you know, it was like Stephen King, you know, Dean Koontz, you know, those types of things. And I would read these books. So I, I was never afraid to read, and I still am kind of a, a, a you know, a book nerd. Um, you know, to me, you know, like, you know, reading and literature is kind of, you know, how I enter into these conversations when, you know, I'm not physically able to access people to be able to have these conversations. Um, and so I was like, look, you know, I need, a, I need some kind of book. I need something on black history. I need something. And she had no idea. She never read anything like that. Um, I had no idea. Went to the bookstore. The kid at the bookstore, he had no idea. He's like, well, there's a black section. You just go look there. And so I went there, and I just got the biggest book I could find. <laughs> 
and which is probably, you know, at, at 14, you know, uh, uh, the first book of the Taylor Branch series, The Parting the Waters, that's the book that I got. And it's this huge book about, you know, the Martin Luther King years from like 1960 to 63. And it took me about four years to read that book. <laughs> it was very, very, very difficult at 14 to try to, be, you know, begin to get through that book. But, you know, it, it began to settle me, you know, to think that, okay, you know, there is a history there. You know, there are people thinking about this. You know, there is something there that is accessible. Um, and so, you know, I started, you know, going to the public library um, you know, and actually reading, you know, other books. And so, you know, by the time I was, you know, 15, sophomore, um, a junior in high school, um, you know, my history classes were a little bit more interesting, um, you know, because those spaces where we were absent, where we were invisible, you know, I began to interject uh, to my teachers, like, hey, you know, such and such was happening, or, you know, you know, there was this person who was, you know, doing this, you know, at, you know, during this time period, um, you know, which, 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 you know, really made those classes, you know, very, very interesting, because this was also a time when David Duke first began, you know, to emerge as a political figure, you know, you know, on the scene in Louisiana, running for governor, running for Congress, and these things, and I began to see my classmates who never taken an interest in politics before. These were, you know, juniors and seniors, you know, sophomores in high school, walking around with these David Duke shirts. And I'm like, you can't even vote. Like, why do you care? You know, we never talked about this kind of stuff before, but all of a sudden, this man comes up and he's animating, you know, these high school kids. And so, and, you know, I think that there are parallels to what we saw, you know, in the last election where, you know, identity, uh, you know, it can be used, you know, to really coax people into supporting, you know, you know these, these very, uh, you know, ridiculous ideas, you know, very hateful, very uh, hurtful um, ideas. And so, you know, a lot of what, you know, I saw, you know, again, you know, was also trying in response to that, not being willing to accept, you know, what, what, what was happening, um, you know, in the school and really trying to find a way for me to try to push back, you know, against that. Um, and I was really fortunate that uh, my junior year, uh, my high school teacher, you know, every so often, like maybe once a week, she would give me five to ten minutes before class to just talk about politics, like anything I was reading or just anything. And that kind of really set me, you know, in this space where I could, you know, just kind of, okay, you know, get comfortable talking in front of a group, um, you know, but also, you know, just begin to, you know, to, to, to kind of put, you know, thoughts, uh, you know, and ideas together that, you know, that I think, you know, would really sort, sort, sort of set me up, um, you know, in this path. Um, you know, but again, you know, I had not met uh, anyone, you know, a, an adult that really shared, you know, these kind of thoughts that, you know, was any type of mentor, you know, any type of role model, you know, or anything. I was just really a kid just kind of on his own trying to figure this stuff out. And so, you know, when I graduated, you know, I went back to New Orleans, um, you know, and uh, enrolled in UNO, the University of New Orleans. And it was a, it was a really eye-opening um, uh, experience, you know, because, Living in the dorm at UNO, you know, it was just completely, it was just, it was just so diverse. It was so, you know, it was night and day uh, from Lafayette. And so, you know, I was able to, get, you know, to interact, uh, you know, with people, you know, from all different types of cultures, all different spaces, you know, you know I, I was able to interact, you know, with new circles, you know, but also there was a very strong, 
you know, tradition of community organizing and activism uh, in New Orleans. And so I was able to finally tap in, you know, to some of this space, you know, to actually find elders, to actually find people who I could actually sit with and, and, and talk with who could actually help me grow. But then also, you know, just being on a college campus, I had access to a, to a much better library, you know, much better books, much, much, you know, much better thoughts. And so, you know, was just able to really also grow uh, sort of uh, as a uh, individual. And so, you know, most of, you know, that organizing, you know, was really sort of interpreted through the black experience. Obviously, you know, it was, it, it, it was racial justice organizing, it was equal justice organizing, and so on. And, and that was sort of the books that I was initially, uh, you, you know, reading, interested in. That was a thought um, that, I was, that, that I was initially uh, animated by. You know, but again, I'm always a contrarian. You know, so I had this, I had this other experience growing up, which, which I was always kind of set apart. And so I was always like, okay, what's wrong with the picture? What's missing from the picture? Because this, to me, is just not complete. And it really, it really came out first, you know, and, you know, this is, this is no secret. You know, when, when you get into a lot of these situations, you know, a lot of the thinking, you know, either theoretical or strategically, politically, it's dominated by a lot of men. Um, and, and it's dominated by a lot of men who have a lot of, let's just say, antiquated notions of gender, you know, their own identity, you know, their own roles. And so, you know, having these conversations, you know, in these, in these, you know, in these moments of political activism and organizing, you know, with these other men, both young and old, you know, I, I, you know, there, there just became, you know, there were just some disturbing, you know, comments that, you know, to me didn't really reflect you know, the life and the reality that I knew growing up with us, with us, with a, with a single parent. So again, my mother enters into this frame. Um, and I was just like, well, you know, that really doesn't fit to me, you know, you know, my perception of reality. And, you know, this doesn't really, you know, seem like a very holistic picture. Um, but again, you know, I didn't really have any language to come back to them in the conversation. And so I turned back to books. And I went into Barnes and Nobles. There's, you know, the women's auxiliary session section of Barnes and Nobles, um, and I found this book, uh, "The War Against Women" by Marilyn French. And I still have this book, and 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 it was and, and this was you know before Bell Hooks, before Michelle Wallace. I hadn't read any black feminists. Again, that that's how segregated these conversations really were. Uh, you know, I hadn't been, hadn't been introduced to any of these things. All of this work I'd been doing around racial justice and 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 all these things, and no one had introduced me to any of these women of color who had been writing, you know, this stuff for years. And so I had to go to Barnes and Nobles, you know, to find a book by Marilyn French on the war against women. Um, but to me, it was, it was a great book. I still have the book. And so, and, and that sort of set me off on an entirely different trajectory to say, well, wait a minute, there's, there's a story here that we haven't been told that's been missed. And so I would go back into these conversations uh, you know, and eventually, you know, would read, you know, Michelle Wallace and Bell Hooks and, and you know, and Angela Davis and, you know, and, and, and many, many others. But, you know, I, I began to go into these conversations and really try to disrupt, you know, a lot of that narrative. And so I got kicked out of a lot of them. And so, again, <laughs> you know, which is kind of sort, sort, sort of set out, uh, you know, into, you know, my own space and, you know, kind of, you know, my, you know, my own path. And, you know, there was, you know, a 
a, and a similar thing would happen, you know, around, you know, reading around about, uh, you know, other cultures as well. I started to read people like, you know, Ronald Takaki and, you know, Strangers from Another Shore and, you know, and, and you know, really coming into, you know, you know reading, uh, um, you, you know, Devin Pena and, and Ruben Martinez who talked a lot about uh, Chicano land ethics. And so just really bringing into, you know, trying to branch out and trying to get, you know, a much more complete picture. And people would ask me like, you know, why, why are you reading all this, all this other stuff? And I was just like, well, you know, because my story isn't really complete without knowing their story, um, you know, and, 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 so, and so, you know, and also, you know, you know, how can we really address you know, the oppressions and, you know, the issues that are facing us if, if, if we don't know, you know, even maybe how our solutions might affect, you know, other people. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to always make, be mindful of that and to make sure that, you know, we had a much more holistic picture, um, you know, about, you know, who we were as a people. Um, and that meant more than just knowing black history. That meant knowing, you know, the totality of, you know, all of our lives as much as we could and just, and just being open to and just being, you know, accepting, um, you know, and, and just, you know, trying to be mindful and aware of the various different strains of history um, that really brought us all together. Um, and so, you know, not to, you know, be dominated by any single narrative or, or, or any single version um, of those events. And so, you know, that, you know, I think, you know, really, really, uh, you know, just really opened me up to a much, much richer uh, world you know, of history, of literature, and, you know, it's really important because, you know, e you know, even today, you know, in my work with NRDC, you know, we're going through this process. The environmental movement, you know, today has come to a point, um, and it's kind of an internal crisis point. I don't know if anyone else here works in any, you know, environmental, you know, nonprofits, organizations, but, but, but so the environmental movement, and, and by movement, I mean, you know, the, you know, the quote-unquote mainstream, the mostly white, um, you know, environmental movement, which really comes out of, you know, the way, the way, the way that I like, to, I like to think of it, you know, and, and the way that it's professed in, 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 in many quarters comes out of a tradition inspired by things like, you know, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, right, which is a warning against the excesses of industrial society. You know, we are using too many resources. You know, we're, we're, we're pushing our societies to resource scarcity. Um, we are burdening our waters, our lands, our air with our waste. You know, they cannot absorb them. You know, you know we know all of this to be true. Um, you know, but then there are other narratives as well, which, you know, this sort of strand of environmentalism, you know, began to have this conversation about these realities, but they begin to have it, you know, just with themselves and kind of in isolation from other strands that were happening as well. And so you had, you know, what is now emerged as the environmental justice movement, which wasn't so much just a warning against the excesses of industrial society, but a warning against the inequalities, you know, that those, that those excesses produce, right? And so, but you have these conversations sort of bubbling up and sort of circling, you know, in very different spaces. And then you had another one, you know, that was happening that, you know, I like to call the sort of livelihood ecologies. And those are people like the people who I grew up with who, you know, even, you know, oil and gas workers, you know, fishermen, the shrimpers who actually harvest the earth, you know, your farmers 
whose livelihoods are actually based off of harvesting, you know, the bounty of the earth. And, 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 and you know, I've never met, you know, anyone, you know, you know, you know uh, in oil and gas. I've never met a coal miner who wants to despoil their environment. Um, you know, but, but, but it's just kind of, it's just, it's just what they do. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, we have, we, have to, we have to reconcile both those livelihoods, but also the identity um, that's created. Because, you know, particularly when you're talking about places like Appalachia, you know, where coal mining really isn't the dominant industry in terms of employment in these regions anymore, but, but, but it's dominant in terms of identity. And so that creates a very different type of political, uh, you know, imperative than just to, oh, you know, we're, you know, we're going to get you new jobs. But you can't get me a new identity, um, you know, with a policy. <laughs> All right? And so that has to be a very different type of conversation. But, and, and, and so, you know, a similar thing, you know, is, is happening in Louisiana around oil and gas. Um, and, and, and really the way that, you know, we both harvest and interact uh, with the environment, you know, because I, you know, as I, you know, you know, began to branch out and I began to meet people from like California and the Northeast and they were like, oh, you never went camping? And I was like, no, because what y'all call camping, we call a mosquito buffet in Louisiana. And so, no, we don't do that. <laughs> you know, so no. So, you know, how you actually, you know, relate to the environment, you know, is really heavily influenced both on the spaces that you grew up in, you know, identity, class, race, you know, all these things, you know, really, really come into play. And that's, and that's a conversation that is now beginning to happen, you know, within the environmental movement because they realize that, well, some have realized, some really have not. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of resistance uh, internally to some of this conversation, but, but, but many people within the environmental community, you know, are recognizing that, you know, you know, you know, we can't continue to move forward with the sort of politics as usual, you know, with being the sort of white middle class you know, exclusive type of politics, but that these issues of race, class, and gender that really animate our work, you know, have to be much more uh, central. We, you know, we have to be much more mindful of how they influence our priorities. And, and I can just give you a, a very brief example. At NRDC, you know, we have, you know, it's very, very important, you know, good projects, but, you know, we have a lot of resources invested in projects around shared mobility, you know, you know your zip cars, your car shares. Um, and uh, electric vehicles. Um, you know, those are, th those are two projects that we invest heavily in. Um, but we don't hardly do anything around public transportation for an environmental organization, a major environmental organization. We have hardly no resources, no staff capacity invested in advocacy around public transit. It seems like a very basic thing. But that's how identity, class, you know, where, where you are really informs, you know, what you set as sort of priorities, you know, for your funding, your fundraising, um, and your projects. And so that's the type of conversation that we're starting to try to have, you know, within the environmental community to begin to like, wait a minute, you know, we need to, you know, we need to re be able to open this up, you know, we need to be able to, you know, to, to rethink some of that conversation, um, you know, because, because all of us are coming at this from, you know, a very, very different um, you know, perspective. And so, you know, for me, you know, when I think internally, you know, the initial relationship, you know, that I had to the environment, you know, was one, and, and again, it, it, it was sort of highlighting these sort of natural disparities because, you know, I learned to swim in a bayou. 
you know, and these bayous, um, you know, are sometimes, you know, very dangerous because when you step into them, you know, in Louisiana, you know, there's no sand. It's just this, just this muddy silt, right? And so when you step into it, you know, you kind of sink down into it because it's just, it's just really soft. It's, it's just, you know, we're, we're so close to the Gulf. Everything is below sea level and, 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 just, and just water is inundating everything. And I'm not quite sure how these sinkholes emerge. It could be from, from you know, barges anchoring. It could be from, you know, you, you know sea life in the bayou, you know, burrowing. But sometimes sinkholes, sinkholes emerge. And if you get caught in one of these sinkholes, you get under and there's an undertow that pulls you down, people drown, you know. I had, you know, cousins who've, who, you know, who, who've drowned, you know, and, and, and that, you know, and, and so, you know, when, 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 when we talk about learning to swim in, in those ways and we talk about the fact that, you know, when my mother was growing up, you know, she was supposed to learn to swim in the bayou, she was scared because she couldn't learn to swim at the public pool, um, you know, because it was segregated, right? And so when I was coming up, you know, she actually sent me to swimming lessons at the public pool twice. <laughs> Even though I already knew how to swim, she was like, you're going to use the public pool because I never had a chance to. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, you, and so, you know, we grow up, you know, learning how to interact and engage with our environment in very unequal ways. Um, you know, if you've ever traveled through, if, if, you've, if you've ever traveled through uh, Louisiana, you know, you'll see people, um, you know, on the side of the road fishing, you know, a lot. And, you know, people are like, oh, you know, it's so, so quaint, it's so cool, you know, people on the side of the road fishing, you know, but they're usually black, um, you know, because again, you know, our access to these watering holes, these fishing spots, you know, are usually mediated by the highways. Okay. Um, are, you, are, are usually mediated by, by these highways, but again, you know, it creates dangers as again, you know, I had, I've had two cousins, 1814, who were, you know, hit by a drunk driver, um, you know, fishing on the side of these, on, on the side of the road, you know, in one of these bayous. And so, and so you see how these inequalities are really built into the way that we, you know, interact and engage, um, you know, with, with our environment, you know, but it's not always that way. You know, one story I, I do want to share with you, I don't know if, if you've ever been to Louisiana or you've ever seen pictures of these, of these oak trees with the branches that come down to the ground. Um, I was in the park uh, with my grandmother um, and, we were, and I was climbing one of these trees and she would tell me a story about why the branches come to the ground this way. And she said, well, you know, th there was a period uh, in our history, you know, where there was very intense lynching, you know, throughout the South. Right. And she said, you know, people went into the forest, uh, they danced and they spoke to these trees and the trees would lower them, lower their branches to the ground uh, because because they asked the trees for relief uh, from, you know, this lynching. And, you know, that to me spoke to uh, a sort of family or a communal uh, environmental ethic um, that 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 I've sort of built. Um, you know, my work really from that story is, is, is really central to you know, to, you know, the way that I come to this work, um, you know, and, and I'm being pressed uh, uh, for time, but, you know, one thing I, I want to say, you know, as we, as we look forward to, you know, the People's Climate March, you know, I, I think, you know, there is another story here because I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to know and have read enough to know and, and sort of come back into this conversation where, you know, climate change or global warming as, as it was originally referred to, um, you know, it used to be, one of the justifications we use for, for why we needed to pursue sustainable development 
as a society. And sustainable development is a term that's kind of fallen out of use, particularly within the U.S., particularly within the U.S. environmental community. Um, but I think it's very important for us to really be mindful of that. Um, you know, because, because when we talk about climate, you know, ultimately, you know, the solutions, ultimately the conversation around climate is around reducing carbon emissions, right? And so for someone like me who works in an environmental organization and is a project manager, counting those carbon emissions becomes our overarching priority. You know, and so reducing poverty, increasing health inequality, those are all secondary. Those are all co-benefits to climate action. And so sustainable development gives us a platform to say, well, you know what, poverty alleviation, environmental quality, you know, they're actually equal. They're actually equal conversations that we need to have together. And one isn't a co-benefit to another. Social justice is not a co-benefit, you know, to climate action. Um, and so, you know, as we go into, you know, this People's Climate March, I, I, you know, the one thing I would ask is that people, you know, really remember this broader conversation because now we've come to a point where climate action has eclipsed sustainable development in our lexicon, in our focus, uh, in our charge. And I think as a society, sustainable development, you know, because each of, you know, each of us may not know the, the appropriate parts per million for carbon that needs to be in the atmosphere, but we can have a conversation about health and education and our immediate environment. And sustainable development gives us that platform to really begin to have that conversation. And we may not want to use that term sustainable development. We may want to call it just transition or something else. But there needs to be a much broader conversation that conversation that's not just climate, that's not just climate action or climate justice, but that's actually bringing people, more people into this conversation, not just scientists, not just engineers, not just Tesla, but that's, but that's actually a much more holistic conversation. And I thank you. Thank you, Khalil. Um, we are running behind, so we're going to go right, right into um, a quick hello to your neighbors and um, as the children join us. <laughs> 